0: Brush up your Shakespeare, start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare, and no women, you'll wow. Just to claim a few Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSEF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, every Sunday at 8 and 8. Archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, shannonjriley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSEF, every Sunday, 8 to 8. You're listening to ksef additional broadcast in topeka brought to you by 785 magazine learn more at 785 live.com and now it's time for shannon shakespeare sunday with your host my daddy shannon riley Hello, hello again, and welcome once again to Shannon Shakespeare's Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75 Live. I'm Shannon Riley. Thank you, my darling Beebe, for once again introducing me. And today, we are continuing on our trek through all of Shakespeare's plays, and I'm kind of bittersweet because today we get to the second to the last of his plays that he wrote It's a history called Henry VIII, and as much as I've enjoyed this process, I'm kind of sad to see us reaching the end of the process, but I think at the same time, I've grown to appreciate the journey that one man went through as he was writing the greatest plays in human history. Further and further I get into this, the more I see the humanity of William Shakespeare and how he is approaching the end of his life. It's it's a remarkable story. Today, our story, as I said, is Henry VIII, and it's a little-known history. In fact, it's really a question of why he even wrote it at all. It was written 15 years after his last history. 15 years! And histories had started to fall out of favor. So there's some question as to why he even wrote it, particularly since... The king, King James I, had his mother killed by Henry VIII. But it was a bit of an homage, I think, for Queen Elizabeth, who was his first big patron, to talk about his fa- her father, but actually, more importantly, to talk about her mother, Anne Boleyn, who, for some reason, Shakespeare calls Anne Boleyn in the play. This play is complicated. There was a lot of love hate for Henry in Jacobean England. They loved the fact that Henry broke them from the Vatican. Protestantism was very, very strong, and the being under the yoke of the Vatican was very hard for the English to tolerate. And certainly, the Vatican in this particular time was a pretty corrupt machine. But at the same time, people knew that Henry was a liar and a despot. They knew that he simply wanted divorce from Catherine of Aragon, that he simply could not wait to find different wives. They didn't believe the stories of his wives being adulterous, they didn't believe it. And Shakespeare in a way is going about to try to set a record straight here, but he takes a very soft turn on this play. He's very careful. Remember, Jacobean England was as much of police state as Elizabethan England was. And so there was only so much tree shaking he could do. The other thing that's remarkable about this play to me is how much it reads less like a history and more like the romances which dominated the end of his writing style. There was music and magic involved in these plays and there was a relationship between a father and a daughter and we see that here with Henry VIII at the very end of the play now celebrating the birth of who would become Queen Elizabeth. So, as unremarkable as this play is, and I'm afraid it is quite a bit unremarkable, it's very rarely done, it's very softly put, and it was not written alone. There's every evidence that Shakespeare wrote this play with his protege, the man he hoped would take over principal writing duties for the kingsmen once Shakespeare retired, and that was John Fletcher. And he did. Shakespeare also collaborated with Fletcher on a number of plays that bear only Fletcher's name. It's quite believed that he was really mentored by William Shakespeare. But Shakespeare meant him to take his place. And they go back to a history. Now, why they go back to a history is a bit of a Convoluted question. Certainly, there were a lot of plays and books and pamphlets that were being written at this time. And by the way, this was uh, written around uh, sixteen thirteen somewhere in that area. It was shortly before Shakespeare retires that were re, and all of these books and pamphlets were reevaluating the life of Henry. So it was back in popular attention. But the history play as a format had kind of fallen out of favor by then. And this play is being written about the father of Queen Elizabeth over a decade after Queen Elizabeth had passed away. Or at least a decade. So it's a real question of whether or not Shakespeare was just trying to help his protege along as a writer and picked the life of Henry VIII for them to work on together to understand that format of the history. Or whether or not Shakespeare wrote this play and then Fletcher himself went back and messed with it kind of cleaned it up. There's some scholars who believe that Shakespeare was losing it by this time, that his gift of writing was starting to wane, and that perhaps Fletcher was brought in to clean it up. I don't think this is true. I think that this is a much more case of the weaker parts of the play really being attributed to Fletcher. Certainly, some of the style of the verse relates more to Fletcher's solo work than it does to Shakespeare's work, but that the framework was definitely Shakespeare. His ability to walk a fine line and play both sides of every argument that is ever present in this play by William Shakespeare. Now, although it's not one of his better plays, it does have some pretty interesting quotes. And to talk about those quotes, I always bring in my boy, Finn, what time is it? And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week thank you, my boy. There are some really unique quotes here. You know, the second title for Henry VIII is All is True. I think this is a very fascinating second title. It's actually the title that Kevin Branagh uses for his film that uh, depicts the final days of Shakespeare when he moves back to Stratford-on-Avon. He calls it All is True. All is True here in this case is that He wants to set the record straight. He wants people to really understand what led up to the birth of Queen Elizabeth. And he wants to slowly say goodbye. And there's some really wonderful quotes that relate to that. For instance, in Act 1, Scene 1, Norfolk has this great quote, Be to yourself as you would to your friend. I love that quote. Be good to yourself. It's Shakespeare's really humanist edge. He, this is one of his most human plays, I think. Norfolk goes on to say in Act One, Scene One, "Heat not a furnace for your foes so hot that it do singe yourself." <laughs> that's that's just brilliant. And Cardinal Wolsey, who plays a very major part in this play, he's a very powerful religious man who has his downfall in Henry VIII, leading to his death, in fact. But he has a great line in act three, scene two, when he knows he's facing the gallows. And he says, I feel within me a peace above all earthly dignities, a still and quiet conscience. And I wonder sometimes if Shakespeare himself did not feel that still and quiet conscience, if that his retirement here, which is coming very soon, was done out of a choice and not because he had no way to continue. I really hope Shakespeare retired to Stratford-on-Avon well, but we don't know. And I think there is strong evidence that he was a sickly man when he returned to Stratford. But there is one more quote I want to talk about, which could be Shakespeare even talking about how he will be remembered. This is a quote from Griffith in Act 4, Scene 2, who said, "Men's evil manners live in brass; their virtues we write in water." And I think that is also very brilliant. So, Henry VIII. I think we all know who Henry VIII is and what his life was about. Shakespeare focuses on a very short period of his life, the middle reign of Henry's reign, when he was divorcing Catherine of Aragon and replacing her with Anne Boleyn. Now, that's one of the topics of this play. Another topic of this play is Cardinal Wolsey, a man of incredible power, religious zealot, who is able to help dethrone Catherine. And as soon as he does, he himself faces an ultimate demise as Henry gets rid of him as well. So there's two competing stories here of power gained and power lost. And there's a small story, and I do mean small story, of the growth of Anne Boleyn as the next queen. Because she is really relegated here to a very small portion of the play. But her contribution in the birth of Elizabeth is considered a grand and momentous occasion by the end of the play. So, let me give you a quick synopsis of what's going on in the show, and then we'll talk some more about what's going on in Shakespeare's life and the rest of the meaning behind the play. Now, we start in Act 1, and it has a prologue, and it tells us that this is a play of real events. Now, the Duke of Buckingham, along with some other nobles, are discussing a meeting between King Henry and the French king. You know, it seems like a great peace has been established but already that peace has been broken. Buckingham is very concerned about the future of the monarchy, and he criticizes it openly, and he also criticizes the amount of power that Cardinal Wolsey possibly has. Wolsey serves as Lord Chancellor of England. He is the second most powerful man in all of England. Now, during this discussion, Buckingham is unexpectedly arrested under the orders of Cardinal Wolsey, perhaps proving the point of how powerful he is. And Buckingham is taken off, accused of treason. At court, King Henry is busy making policy decisions about the woolen trade, and he has sitting next to him his wife, Queen Catherine, who joins him in many of these decisions. Wolsey suddenly starts taking credit for the decisions that the king is making, and Catherine questions his motives. Henry agrees with her criticism of Wolsey. But when the queen speaks on behalf of Buckingham, the king refuses to hear it, and instead sides with Wolsey's idea that Buckingham is responsible for treason. Wolsey that night holds a huge feast at his palace at Hampton. Many lords and nobles attend, including the lady Anne Boleyn. Boleyn. As the feast continues, the king shows up with a few of his friends, and they're disguised as shepherds. Wolsey immediately recognizes the king, and he also notices... That he chooses Anne to be his partner during a dance. Now, in Act Two, back in London, Buckingham is condemned to death by false witnesses. He leaves a powerful address to the crowd before he is executed at court. Rumors start to spread that Wolsey's power is growing out of control, and it's possible he is behind the recent separation between Catherine and the King. King Henry, Wolsey, and other religious leaders discuss the validity of the marriage to Catherine of Aragon. They discuss that maybe. That was a marriage that never should have happened and a a simple minor truce between England and Spain. They discuss the possibility of divorce. Anne Boleyn hears the rumors and feels sorry for the queen, not excited about what she's going to gain, but sorry for what the queen may lose. When word arrives that the king has given her a title, her companion, an older lady-in-waiting, persuades her to welcome the king's favor and to play it up. During a trial set up for the divorce, Queen Catherine asks to be allowed to have advisors from Spain her native country, but Wolsey refuses and she accuses him of being responsible for Henry's desire for the divorce. So she storms out of the trial, effectively ending it. Henry blames the French for the first questioning the validity of his marriage and thinks that maybe he should have done a better job of picking a match. In act three, Catherine seeks solace with his ladies and music. Wolsey and his companions arrive. One of them is Campius, He's another religious leader that we'll come back to later. They interrupt her and try to persuade her to submit to the king's wishes for a divorce. She refuses, but the divorce is finalized anyway. Soon, word is sent out that Henry has had a secret marriage to Anne Boleyn, and it's the talk of the court. King Henry finds Wolsey has been secretly writing to the Pope, opposing this divorce, and he confronts Wolsey about it. Some of the Lords demand that Wolsey give up his position as Lord Chancellor, as Thomas More, has been waiting for a chance to succeed him. Wolsey steps down and advises his secretary, Cromwell, to leave, get out of London as fast as possible, fearing that Cromwell himself will be caught up in the downfall of Wolsey. In Act 4, Queen Anne is crowned, and everyone remarks that the splendor of the ceremony in the court is easily forgotten about Catherine. In retirement, Catherine hears of Wolsey's death, and she dreams of her own death, where she is attended by spirits who sing and dance. And she asks her servants that when she does die, that her burial be done with recognition as a queen. And finally in Act 5, court gossip is raging about changes that Queen Anne is making and the birth of her new baby daughter. Court gossip also includes charges against Cranmere, the new archbishop. After a struggle between Cranmere and his enemies, of which he is condemned to the tower, the king himself defends Cranmere and names him the godfather of baby Princess Elizabeth, and he baptizes Elizabeth Cramner then prophesies that she will become a great and powerful leader who will bring peace and plenty to England. In an epilogue, he briefly requests the approval of the audience for the play that has told the history of their great queen's birth and how England will go on to succeed thanks to the current king, King James. All right, a little bit of toady in there at the end for Shakespeare's part. We're going to talk more about this play on the other side as Shannon's Shakespeare Sunday continues. We'll see you in just a little bit. Right here is where I would say, now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. And welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75live.com. I want to take a moment to thank KSEF that has been allowing me to have at least a half hour to talk about the world's greatest playwright every Sunday on the 8th. I really appreciate it. It really has been a joy. And check out a lot of the great programming you have here on KSEF. There is wonderful programming, all locally produced here in Topeka, and I have the pleasure of working alongside the Stoic, The Poet, and The Fool, week after week, as I produce their show as well. So check out all of the shows. They're, they're really dynamite. Now, in terms of this show, I want to say once again, my name is Shannon Riley. I am not a Shakespearean scholar. I do not claim to be a Shakespearean scholar, but I am a devotee of William Shakespeare. And I am a strict Stratvarian in that I believe the works of William Shakespeare were written by none other than a man by the name of William Shakespeare. I think it's pretty simple. I would like you all to send me your questions or your thoughts or comments about the shows. I really want to hear from you. If you want to talk to me, you can send questions or comments to Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. And I would love to hear from anyone out there listening to this podcast. Today, of course, as I said, we are talking about Henry VIII, Shakespeare's last history play and his second to last play of all. And it's bittersweet, and it's kind of sad, and it's kind of forlornin' in the fact that what we have here is a history that is, by far, leaves and bounds beneath his greater histories. Henry V and Richard III are so much stronger than this play. But at the same time, we believe this was not, and when I say we, scholars believe, and this guy just claiming to write alongside them, that Shakespeare didn't write all of this play. It was actually a collaboration that he had with his protege, a man by the name of John Fletcher, who was also a playwright in his own right at the time, who had been writing, and many believe he was the handpicked successor by William Shakespeare to take over for him when he retired from the Kingsman. Now, how much was Shakespeare's and how much was Fletcher's is really hard to determine, although there are certain algorithms that are done in the computer programs to try to determine it. There are people who are much more enlightened than I am that look at the poetry and how it scans and compares it to Fletcher's work and compares it to Shakespeare's work. And they have come up with an idea of division of work here. In fact, the most common breakdown, if you want to keep a score on this, is that Shakespeare wrote Act 1, Scenes 1, 2, 3, and 4. He wrote Act 2. He wrote Act 3, Scene 2, a good portion of it. Not all of it, but a good portion of it. And he wrote Act 5, Scene 1 everything else was Fletcher. So really the majority of this play does belong to Fletcher. But at the same time, it's got these marks of Shakespeare in it that really reflect his later plays. This time when he was writing about love and life, what is worth life in the end at all. There's a very strong mortality that you see in Shakespeare's latter writings. He is questioning not only what it means to be a man, but how will a man be remembered? And he's writing about a man that is not well remembered in England. He had his detractors, of course. He had his supporters, those people who really loved being broken from the Vatican and the establishment of the Church of England. Henry VIII was a very despotic ruler. He was very dangerous. He was chaotic. And there was a lot of people who had the memory of Henry VIII as being a vicious man. Keep in mind that when this was written, which is 1613, is not that far away from when Henry VIII was ruler of England. Surely no one is still alive, but it's not that far along. So you have here a playwright who was facing his own end, questioning a great monarch in his own end. Now there's a couple of other things that I think I'll, I really want to touch on before I move to what happens to Shakespeare next. Shakespeare himself was close to the end of his writing career, as I've said before. There's only one play left after this and we'll discuss it next week. But this play was not probably his choosing. It's doubtful Shakespeare would have wanted to walk out of the scene in theatrical London. On a political note, politics were dangerous. Writing anything about monarchs were dangerous. And Shakespeare himself had stayed as far away from contemporary leaders when he was writing. He wrote about Henry V, a great and virtuous king. He wrote about Richard III, who was a 100 years before that, an incredible villain in history. Which, by the way, that's not entirely true, but that's certainly how Shakespeare cast him. Shakespeare was a very political animal. He knew what side his bread was buttered on, and he did not push the envelope really all that much. Fletcher himself was more of a political writer. He poked the bear more than Shakespeare did. And there could have been that this idea of the play might have existed with Fletcher rather than with Shakespeare. But when they were going to collaborate together on something that it was really Fletcher who really wanted to do this play. Matter of fact, the prologue, even before you get to Shakespeare's writing, the prologue was written by Fletcher. At least that's what's believed. We don't really know, but we kinda think that's what happened. But what happens here in this play is truly remarkable in that Shakespeare walks his typical fine line. If you look at any other play written about this period and written about these particular characters, There is definitely a pro-Catherine or pro-Anne approach to these plays. Anne was either seen as a scheming, conniving woman who wanted the crown, or she was seen as a sweet innocent who fell into the trap of King Henry VIII. Catherine is seen as an adulterous, shrewish, borderline crazy woman in some of the plays. Other times, she is seen as a demure, innocent flower who was immediately taken over and destroyed by the king. Shakespeare doesn't write either one of them this way. He writes a Catherine who is indeed terrified about what's going to happen to her, but she maintains grace. She maintains dignity. He also writes about an Anne Bullen who is innocent of any machinations and even has pity on poor Catherine. This is a Shakespeare hallmark. His ability to write two sides to every story. He writes... Here, with Fletcher, a Cardinal Wolsey who is absolutely power hungry, dreadful, in the way of every other lord and willing to kill in order to get what he wants. But when he loses his power and he is sentenced to death, he is a humble, contrite man who recognizes the failings in his life. Shakespeare does not, at this period of his life, see things in absolutes. He's an older man looking back at life with very clear and open eyes. And I think it really also demonstrates the human edge of Shakespeare at the end of his writing. This very idea that this is soon going to be all over. And finally, there's that question about the girl. This relationship fathers and daughters dominated all of the romances. Now again, this is a history. It's not a comedy. It's not a tragedy. It's a history. But it reads more like a romance. And that daughter doesn't come in until the very end of the play. But you don't see a Henry who is disappointed that he has a female as an offspring. You don't see a disappointed father. No, you see a very proud father. And you have a beautiful declaration at the end of the play that this baby will grow to be a powerful and wonderful monarch, and that she will lead this country to greatness, which indeed is what Elizabeth did. There were some complaints that King James never would have permitted such praise for Elizabeth. He didn't like her that much, and that it is unlikely that this play was written when King James was on the throne. It must have been written when Elizabeth was, but that is very unlikely, and it's not true. There were a lot of plays written with praise to Queen Elizabeth, and a lot of plays written with praise to all the Tudors during this period. King James didn't do anything about that. He may have liked them. He might not have wanted to go see them, but it sure as heck didn't stop them. So there's no reason to believe here that this was not a play written at the end of Shakespeare's life. And I wanna talk about one other very painful element of this play and what it meant to Shakespeare's life. Now my cardinal rule through this whole podcast is when you're talking about Shakespeare, you have to remember, when was it written? It's believed that this was written in 1613 to a Jacobean audiences. Something else amazing happened. In 1613, something that would have had dire and devastating consequences for our playwright. I want to first talk about the construct of the globe itself, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts. The globe was a wooden structure with a thatch roof, it was open in the center. People stood on the ground to watch the plays for however long they were. For a penny, you could sit in the benches that ring the stage. For two pennies, you got a cushion. For more money, you could even sit on stage as long as you were a nobility, but that's a side story. Anyway, there was something else about the construct. Above the stage was an area where gods would come down, a kind of deus Ex Machina thing, and little set pieces would come down and the orchestra would play from up there. It's usually a four or five piece band. This was called heaven. Under this stage was called hell. And in Hell was where they stored their properties, their costumes, and their manuscripts. The plays of William Shakespeare in written form, maybe even many in his own handwriting, were under that stage. In 1613, according to one account, it was the play, Henry VIII, that was being performed. And it was only the second or third time it had ever been performed. The account says only performed two or three times prior to this. At the death of Wolsey, for dramatic effect, it was decided they'd fire off a cannon. But when they fired off that cannon, sparks landed on the thatch roof, and it set the globe on fire. Everybody got out. There's no account of anyone being killed in that globe fire. But there is an account of one gentleman whose breeches were burned beyond repair in the buttock area, but that he didn't stop to put it out because he had his hands filled with some of the treats they sold through the stalls to eat. In any case, the Globe Theater burns to the ground. That means everything, its entire contents. Shakespeare was there, and he watched not only the theater that he worked hard to build and still owned shares in at this time, but he would have watched all of his manuscripts, everything under that stage, be destroyed, turned to ash. As a writer, that must have been devastating. It's not like they had photocopies. It's not like he had it on a hard drive somewhere. To Shakespeare, it must have been like watching his life's work being destroyed. Shakespeare returns to Stratford-on-Avon shortly after that fire. They rebuild the globe, matter of fact, ten years to the day after that fire, they performed yet again on that stage, Henry VIII, in commemoration of that burning of the globe. But Shakespeare was never the same. He would have returned to Stratford-on-Avon believing his works were gone, eradicated. And he would have died knowing that he will be a forgotten man. It was Hemmings and Condell who went out of their way to find any manuscript Anywhere else that they could find, it took them seven years to find what they believed was the complete works at the time, and, and and they knew that a couple were missing. But they published these plays, and the the, the full folio shows examples that they were in the middle of printing when they would come running in, going, "We found another!" and they would have to reshuffle the printing. So it was a massive undertaking to create these complete works of William Shakespeare, and it was done by two friends who did not want the art of William Shakespeare. To be lost. But to Shakespeare, he had no idea that event would happen, and he would have died in Stratford on Avon, in his bed, certain in the knowledge that his plays were gone. He died a wealthy man. He had land, he had property, he had his daughters around him, he had grandchildren, but he had lost his greatest works. And thankfully, due to Hemmings and Condell, we all have them again. Thank you for listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF. Coming to you every Sunday on the 8th. Thank you to Carice for letting me come on. And join me next week as we talk about Shakespeare's final play and his final days on this earth. I'm Shannon Riley. Until next time, keep it barred to the bone. (laughs) Bye-bye.